we've talked about just the just focused on unity. This whole uh, uh, teaching series is on unity. Uh, we talked about uh, Stephen taught on just pure unity to begin with, and then last week we talked about the foundation of preaching and prayer. This week we're going to talk about the exciting subject of church governance, uh, but and how and how it fits. Uh, <clears throat> but I would start to ask a question by uh, what makes question about who makes the decisions here in our church? If you're a member and you attend church conferences, it can often feel like uh, the only ones making decisions are the elders. But if that's the case, what's our responsibility? I know I'm an elder, but I'm also a church member. Is the congregation's role in decision making? We're going to talk through that, hopefully through scripture and <clears throat> kind of. Uh, practical application as we go through this morning. Uh, you know, and I'm, like I said, I'm not sure if any of you, you may have, have laid awake this week thinking about church governance and, the, and how important it is, but uh, it's kind of like, it's, not, it's something that we don't think about all the time, but it's kind of like the, the piston in the engine of your car. It, uh, you know, you don't really ever think about it, but if it doesn't work uh, or if something goes wrong, it's pretty obvious. And that's kind of the same way it is with church governance. Uh, you know, it's, in, it's, a, it's a really important part of running a f faithful to its God-given mission, for the church to run faithful to its God-given mission. You know, and the more we know about church governance and how it works, the better we can adjust the way we live as the church members to promote unity in the congregation. Let's start to define church governance. Church governance is the system by which decisions are made in a church. It's where authority lies. So think of, of the example of the question that we should put in, about the question of what we should put in our statement of faith. How we decide that question depends on our system of governance. Church governance can be a great tool for unity or a great opponent of unity. If you think of who holds decision-making authority in a family, it shows just how crucial this concept is. So the kids have ice cream for dinner, they stay up till 1 a.m., but they need to be reminded of who's in charge, not them. It's, uh, it's their parents. And it's similar, we need to know who holds authority in the church. Uh, it is important because God wrote about it in his word. We don't have to allow secular culture to, dic to dictate that leadership is in the church, nor do we have to be left clueless in the dark. God has given us his word, <clears throat> And that word speaks. He speaks on church governance. Uh, he is glorified as we follow his instructions. And as we do, proper authority should protect and prosper the unity of the church. Uh, we're going to look at 
we're going to look at the two main offices to begin with in the church. Uh, those are elders and deacons from the scripture. You know, we'll think about what the congregation's role is in decision-making authority. Uh, then we'll consider these issues. We want to focus especially on unity. That's what our teaching series has been about and how we can focus on that. Uh, how organizing the church, and according to scripture, promotes unity, and how we can each live with that organization to maximize the love and witness our, of our church. It's really important. So we'll start off with the scriptural offices of the church, and the first, first I mean, the, the, oh, the two offices are elders and deacons, and we'll start with, we're going to start with elders. Uh, and the term elder... And I, I had to look these up. The, the term elder in the Greek is presbyteros. And I listened to two or three different pronunciations, and that's as close as I'm going to get. Uh, and it's used in interchangeably with overseer or bishop, which is the episcopus, and the pastor's poimenus uh, in the Greek. Those two words are used interchangeably or for bishop, pastor, overseer, and that's what Acts talks about in 2017-37. Elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. So in Acts 20-28, Paul tells the Ephesians elders, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which is obtained with his own blood. So we see, in, and we also see in Acts 6 uh, that the elders should especially devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Elders are also charged with being the principal governing body of the church, as you see in 1 Timothy 5.17, uh, where it says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor. It's also spoken, the, <clears throat> Peter speaks about it in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 5. So here are four ways uh, that having biblical eldership promotes and protects the church. The first is the elder model of leadership places authority in those qualified to exercise it. Uh, as you go through this as an elder, you... You also, it, it brings humility on yourself as you read through these passages again and also trying to teach, teach about what, the, what your responsibilities are. So, you know, it, uh, it, it entrusts the primary preaching and teaching duties along with significant decision-making authority to those who meet certain qualifications as set forth in 1 Timothy 3, Titus uh, one six through nine, also in Timothy five, Tim, I mean First Timothy five seventeen, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Just like you probably wouldn't entrust your medical care to someone without an MD, the church is assured that those who are charged with the most significant responsibilities have met certain biblical criteria that establishes their character and ability to serve. And because of that, that fosters unity because we recognize a common standard that elders have to live up to. 
or do live up to. Uh, second, elder leadership places special responsibility for the spiritual health of the membership in the hands of those who have special accountability to God. So we see in Hebrews 13, 17, keep watch over you as men, keep watch over you as men who must give an account. This means that if we have godly elders, they will lead us by fear of God first, not fear of us. Uh, God holds them responsible uh, to obey Ephesians 4, 12 through 13, which says that the pastor's job is to prepare the church for works of service so that we can all reach unity in the faith. A third, <clears throat> excuse me, a third way, I got, I got a little excited at both the football games, so my voice is, I'm, I'm an octave down this morning. Uh, a third way that the elder leadership promotes unity is through Christ's requirement that members obey their leaders and submit to their authority. Hebrews 13, 17, uh, uh, when we submit to authority together, it promotes unity. Why? Well, think about the posture of submission. Submission makes us more humble and less headstrong, more deferential and less defiant. Like in a home or in our own relationship with God, a humble recognition of rightful authority brings benefits. So, as Hebrews 13 17 says, obey them that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And now lots of people are uncomfortable with the idea of authority anywhere. I mean, that is the culture, the mostly, I'm going to say, uh, it's prevalent in the American culture uh, because. Uh, I meet with, you guys probably know, uh, Dan Paul. Well, he and I meet together periodically, and we talk about that. And he says that's just so different than the culture he grew up in. He said, he said you never really question authority. Uh, it was just something that was part of the culture. Well, it's, and so he has been surprised somewhat at how this culture, the American culture, I'm not saying right or wrong, I'm not, I'm, it's not a criticism of just saying how different it is that uh, we, we're pretty much questioning authority most of the time. <laughs> uh, but I will have to say that there are certainly abuses, abused authority. You know, we might see a bad or ungodly example of a, of, uh, a demeaning husband or memories of an earthly dad who used authority for his own personal glory. And sadly, it can be uh, sinful, sinfully misdirected, but God have invented authority. It is good for it is for the good as a church, and it's also the good of members individually, because learning to trust authority is good for us spiritually. Uh, in the church, when elders' authority is used with the consent of the congregation, for the good of the congregation, the congregation will benefit as God builds up his church. Uh, as members, we're called to submit, but the other side of that is that the elders are called to exercise their authority rightly. Uh, so in 1 Peter 5, P 
Peter addresses elders, tell them, he tells them, be shepherds of God's flock, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Elders should be marked by a use of their authority which shows they understand that the church belongs not to them, but to Christ. They should be servant-hearted and exhibit the same humility that Christ exhibited. Uh, fourth and finally, the biblical model of elder leadership promotes unity by establishing a plurality of elders. Instead of having the leadership of the church rest heavily on one man's shoulders, in Acts 14.23 we read, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in which they had put their trust. I think you have some other Bible references in your outline of, of the emphasis of the plurality of elders. And as a, as a personal example, uh, we as elders, when we sit around the table, uh, it, is, it, it, is, it brings humility as well as, as well as unity, whenever you can sit around and and talk in in a group in a plurality of elders rather than one person making the decisions, it's been it's been a blessing to see that. Um, I'll have to say I don't I'm not always we're not always all in line, but when the when the decisions made and we've talked it through. We're, we're all we we all come to a unified decision, so it's really it's really been encouraging. So, so uh, let me ask you this, and for there are many other verses I said. How does having multiple elders foster unity in the church? Any. Any reaction to that? Mm-hmm. That is, that's true. Yep, that's true. Treva just said, uh, because it says that, you know, for one, uh, with plurality of the elders, it makes the decisions of elders collectively rather than by a single elder are more likely to have support throughout the whole congregation because there's, there should be some representation. And it, it, you can think of Proverbs 15.22. Plans fail for lack of counsel but with many advisors, they succeed. So uh, having a plural elders means elders must have humility as they relate to each other, uh, and their humility should be a model for the whole church. Uh, hopefully, that, hopefully that's the case. The other side of this is that a plurality of elders increase the members' confidence in the decision-making uh, while alleviating the pastor from bearing all the criticisms for a decision. Uh, this is, gets to uh, what Stephen just said. Also, a plurality of elders enables the leadership to know the congregation better. 
uh, it's easier for multiple elders to know and care for different parts of the congregation than just a single pastor. Uh, with a plurality of elders, it's less likely that members of the congregation will feel neglected or feel they don't have access to the leadership. Uh, and that is, I think, an area that, uh, that in any church needs to be taught and talked about regularly. Uh, just about that. Yes, Jack? I think so, but uh, I mean, what? Well, I, I think you're, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, Yes. And it's reflected in the church. And the church is it's what, coming together yeah. with them, which is in contrast to what Satan did when he rebelled against you know, the whole message of the gospel is to come surrender back to Christ. Yeah, well, and the, the, what we've been talking about for the last four weeks has been uh, that unity glorifies God and that's what the whole that's what the purpose is and Satan had did not want to glorify God I mean and that's why and it's what makes it I think a plurality of elders or polarity of leadership helps in <clears throat> in accomplishing the ability for us to come together as a congregation to bring bring glory to God yeah so Yes. Right. And actually may be able to hear the gospel in contrast to a church that's not unified. Right. And I think I think having multiple elders helps that as well, uh, from the standpoint that because if you look at if you look at what happened over the past few years, some of the some really large churches who focused on one man and he falls the the church does not bring glory to God, or the it's it's not reflected well into the into the dark world. The, the light kind of goes out. So, yeah, I think that's a. I think I think we'll see that application. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, so how does the uh, this understanding of the office of elder change the way we live as a church members, so that we can build our unity together? There are three ways. 
uh, first, and this answer should be obvious, we should obey our elders and submit to their leadership. The elders' authority in this regard is tied to the faithful teaching of Scripture. So in Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. So if, that, if that's not being done, we need, to start thinking, we need to start thinking a little more deeply about what's going on. Uh, you know, but does that mean that we as elders absolute, that can tell you absolutely everything in the small preferential details of life? Meaning can Stephen and I tell Jack that he, he can't buy, a, he, need, he has to buy a sedan, not an SUV. Well, that's, that's kind of crazy anyway. No, that's not the case. The elders have the authority to lead the congregation by explaining the word of God and applying it in specific circumstances. I don't think that one would be a circumstance of which we would apply the word of God on what kind of car Jack would buy. So, They provide godly wisdom based on scriptural principles and truth. So members should obey them in so much as they continue in sound doctrine and exhibiting godly lives around that doctrine. Second, we need to strategize to make the elders' work a joy and not a burden. Uh, you know, we know from Hebrews thirteen seventeen that this will be this will be for our good. This will do us good. So let's look for ways to encourage our elders and pray for them. Part of that involves the perception we create of the elders in the eyes of others, especially new Christians. The way that we talk about elders to others and the way we engage with elders at members' meetings. It doesn't mean we never ask questions of our elders or ask them to explain what they mean. It means we do so in a way that assumes the best and helps others get in line with how the elders are leading. How you talk about your pastors over the phone, around coffee, or in get-togethers really shows how you view them or their work. What dominates your conversations when they are the topic? Uh, you know, thirdly, the third way is consider the qualifications of those put forward as potential elders. Uh, Although we should give the elders' recommendations a heavy weight, uh, we should also make an effort to know prospective um, el- to know prospective elders. If you don't know a prospective elder at all, seek the opportunity between the time the person is nominated and when the congregation votes on him, which is usually two or three months, to talk to him to ask him questions. There's, if there's some concern that you would withhold your vote, it might be a good reason for the elders to withdraw that person's nomination. You can't do that unless you know these brothers and you communicate with the other elders. In all this, remember that our elders serve as under-shepherds of the great shepherd Christ. They won't be perfect um, living example like Jesus. When they do lead like Jesus, we should encourage them. Uh, we should follow them as they follow Christ. Any uh, any questions about 
the comments or uh, about elders, how they're selected, what their role is, anything? The second type of office, which is clearly set out in Scripture, is the office of deacon. In the New Testament, the Greek word can be translated deacon or servant. It refers to service in general. Deacons attend to the practical details of church life, such as administration, maintenance, the sacraments, the bookstall, transportation, and care of members with physical needs, which leads us to a crucial question. But we have one of those deacons here with us today that, uh, is char- it, that helps us with member care. Um, Jack and Mike Lawrence lead that effort to care for members in our congregation that need care, that come up for special, special needs. Uh, so... How does a proper biblical understanding of the relationship between deacons and elders foster unity within the church? Well, would someone look up Acts 6 and volunteer to read that? Because we're going to see what, how that relationship is explained in the Scripture. You want to read it? Read out. No, just one through six. I'm sorry. Chorus, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, what we see here is that upon the recommendation of the apostles the church appointed deacons to make food distribution among the widows more equitable, which we see in 2 through 5. In this, we see three ways that deacons contribute to the unity of the church. First, deacons care for all members of the church. Uh, The work among the widows uh, was important because the physical neglect of the Grecian widows was causing spiritual disunity. And one group of Christians was, being, was beginning to complain against the other group in a particularly dangerous way. It was along cultural lines. This seems to be what caught the attention of the apostles. 
and attending to all the widows, the deacons diffuse the situation and preserve the unity by taking care of all the widows, not anything along any lines. Uh, second, the deacons in Acts allowed the apostles to devote their time to the ministry of the word and prayer. Uh, so as we just read, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and it will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, you know, today's, today the deacon's role is the same role in support of the ministry of the elders uh, because it's primarily the ministry of the church. Deacons humbly pursuing their service while elders teach and lead, each embracing their God-given role. And in doing so, the elders are able to focus on their duty of the word and prayer. Uh, finally, a third way the deacons cultivate unity is by distributing work throughout the congregation. Here's where we come in. Deacons coordinate volunteers for particular needed ministries in the church, such as providing, providing rides to those in need, having members visit those homebound, or setting, or setting up the Onyx coffee. This prevents a disproportionate amount of work from falling on just a few members and enables all members to have the opportunity to, to participate in the joy of serving others. Um, and just ask yourself this morning, where am I serving in the life of the body? Am I seeking ways to be served? Or am I finding ways to get alongside our deacons to serve and free up time for elders to do their work? You don't have to answer that question this morning, but it's a self-reflective question. Uh, here, there are a few implications of deacon's work for the rest of us. Consider this. Uh, the, this understanding of a deacon should inform our selection of deacons as well. If a deacons are ones to foster unity, we should be looking for those that have the capacity to be uniters, not dividers. They shouldn't be concerned about protecting their own turf. They should not be the kind of folks who are always lobbying for their big idea. Instead, they come on behalf of the whole, the whole body, to serve particular needs with a sense of contributing to the whole church body. Uh, second, we should as members support the deacons by volunteering in their various ministries. In so doing, we promote unity in the church by encouraging the deacons, by coming alongside them, uh, and helping in distributing the work evenly. Then um, the third aspect of church governance, we're going to look at uh, congregationalism. Uh, and it's also set, as it's set forth in the scriptures. But we're still, what about the form of church government? Who should have the final say on matters in the church? Well, when you look at the scriptures, the congregation has the final authority in three particularly 
significant matters of the church. One is church discipline, one is church membership, and one is church doctrine. Thus, the weight of Scripture supports a congregational form of government. And we're going to look at those Scriptures as we, go, as we go through this. We know from Matthew 18, 15 through 17, that the congregation has the final say on matters of discipline. If one member has sinned against another and refuses to listen, even after being confronted by others, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, tell it to the church. Uh, additionally, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see that it's only the congregation that has the authority to discipline a member. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, when you are assembled, when you're assembled as a church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you, the church, are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But we're also commanded in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8, Paul urges the whole church to readmit someone who was previously expelled from the church of Corinth, who apparently had repented. So to see this example, the congregation as well has the final say in matters of membership. Matters of discipline, matters of, of uh, membership. Uh, and, and finally, it's also uh, the case in the matters of doctrine. In Galatians 1.8, Paul says to the Christians in that church, not just the pastors, even if we are an, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And I think you have in your handout, there are many other times in the New Testament. It's the church that is blamed for bad teaching, not the elders. Because it is our responsibility. So, so the church is ultimately accountable for doctrinal matters. So the question for us, does this congregational authority help the unity as a congregation? Well, I think the answer is yes. For one, uh, this, this, for one, this authority gives us members a great amount of stewardship uh, in the local church. It really gives us a lot of accountability and responsibility. Uh, since, since we have to answer to Jesus. And, and how do we fulfill the role? If the health of church is ultimately up to the leaders, we can just sit back and relax. Uh, but if it's up to us, we should take an interest in the health of the body which should lead us to care for one another, love one, more, love one another more deeply, and do all that we can do individually to pursue unity. Uh, this authority also fosters unity by enabling the congregation to protect the purity of the gospel. That's one of our main, that's one of our main responsibilities. Because it really is the very thing that unites us as Christians. So we need to serve as a fence to protect the church against false teaching. Uh, 
or to discipline a member who is in unrepentant sin. You could think of it as being a spotter. For those of you, and I was never a weightlifter, but for those of you, I know what a spotter is. If you are lifting, if you are bench pressing a big amount of weight, you have a spotter that uh, sees if you get in trouble. And if, if that's the case, the spotter takes over. He has authority. He or she takes over the authority and, uh, and removes the danger, tries to interrupt the exercise and takes over. So we need to be like, a spot, like, that, like that spotter. The congregation is the one called to safeguard the gospel and make sure it is preserved. And, you know, this arrangement makes sense. If you look at church, church history, has taught us that it's more likely for a few church leaders to go astray than a whole congregation of regenerate believers who know the gospel and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it has historically been that if you concentrate leadership down to a few people, there, there are, it, it gives a lot better opportunity to stray from the gospel and the uh, tenets of scripture uh, because man's opinion starts to come in there. And so if, if you look at churches who are congregationally led, that one, that's, but it's not concentrated in leadership, in a few, in, in a few higher ups, then that church, if it strays doctrinally, will usually die away. But if it stays doctrinally sound, you'll see that church flourish because it's, it is the, the church members are holding the doctrine pure. Uh, and that leads us to one final topic this morning, the balance between elder leadership and congregationalism. We've seen that Scripture teaches the idea of elder leadership in the church. And in fact, Hebrews 13 states that members should obey their leaders and submit to their authority. And yet, we've also seen that Scripture gives the congregation final say on certain matters of significance. This tension raises two further questions. First is... What about other matters that arise in the life of the church besides discipline, doctrine, membership, and personal disputes? How much further a congregation decides to involve itself corporately is is in matters like staff, budget, permissions, is a matter left to its discretion and prudence. For instance, our church constitution calls for a congregational vote to approve the annual budget, to elect elders and deacons, and to call the senior pastor, among other things. Then the second question is how we can be obedient to the biblical command to obey and submit to our leaders, and at the same time exercise our membership responsibilities of guarding the purity of the gospel or serving in that spotter role that I talked about with the weightlifter. Well, one helpful way to think about this is to consider how serious the matter is and whether the matter is clear or not. 
You know, for example, let's say the issue is whether the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Or is it just parts of the Bible that's inspired? Well, that issue is both serious and clear. The Bible in its entirety is inspired. This is the kind of clear doctrinal issue that if the elders teach something false, the congregation should not defer to them. This is where the congregation has the duty to step in as the spotter to preserve the integrity of the gospel message. What if, on the other hand, the issue is whether the congregation should approve the elder's recommendation that a prospective member be admitted into membership? Which is a practice that we have uh, and we use in our quarterly church conferences. Well, this also is a, is a serious issue but in most cases, it won't be as clear to the congregation because all of us can't get to know that person's testimony closely. Uh, this is the kind of area for which it's most important for the congregation to trust the elders in our, in our quarterly church conferences. In many ways, it is these kinds of issues where the elders most particularly serve the church by doing the specific work of interviewing and considering potential members. Because membership does require con congregational approval, we should make as informed a decision as possible. And if we have a good reason to doubt the elders' recommendation, we should let them know directly. But generally, this is an area where our default should be to trust the elders. And I know as elders, we, we go through a pretty extensive process. If those of you who have recently gone through know what that process is, uh, membership interviews, you go through a class, uh, you're asked some questions, you, then you're asked by an elder, uh, and then we discuss it again in our elders' meetings, trying to un make sure we understand what, what that process was, what that person's heart is at the time at least how it's been how it's been displayed and communicated so it's not something that we take lightly uh, so there is there is some there is quite a bit of work that goes on before we present folks for membership and also for folks for uh, being uh, uh, moved out of membership there are several different ways that that happens. But. So how we as church members can contribute to the unity by participating in decision-making process of the church. How can we as members? Let me suggest a couple of ways. First, we should take seriously the responsibility we have to guard against false teaching and error in the church. I love how the Bereans are described in Acts 17.11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
So if you believe that there's doctrinal error taught from the pulpit, then you're responsible to learn more about that. Go talk to an elder in person to find out what the elder or pastors believe on that point. If the elders ever stray from the statement of faith, the congregation must step in. It is our duty to know the word. Second, we should take seriously our membership privileges and responsibilities, including our voting privilege. So we should attend the church meetings, members, the church members' meetings, these are the church conferences, and we should be participating in the various votes that come up. This is another way that we can provide unity in the body. You know, if you're standing by, I mean, if you're sitting by, standing by, by voting along with the rest of the congregation on important matters such as approving the budget or electing new elders, we are showing our agreement, assuming we agree, with the elders and the rest of the church on these actions. I'll ask, do, are there any questions or comments about... Uh, church governance, the offices, uh, congregational authority, any specific comments or questions? I know it's an exciting topic, but it is really crucial to how the church displays its glory to the world, God's glory. Not its glory, but God's glory. do there's that's where we we approved the statement of faith last year or was it this year we I don't remember when we voted on it we've talked about it for we've talked about it in elders for a while so the the statement of faith was just recently uh, amended and changed and then also the church covenant uh, all those things are vital to uh, our church's governance and how we and, and how we display God's glory, uh, and it's our responsibility to know what they say, and if there's any, and there's ever any deviation to it. Uh, well, any other comments, questions? Well, as we re go ahead. remember if I've seen a specific example, but we have disciplined a member and we've continued to uh, we've continued to love him, come alongside him, still trying to and trying to encourage him to repent. And uh, if if that evidence is there, yeah, we would but I don't know that I have a specific example that we have as yet. So 
but that's a good question because it's pretty clear what the what Paul was telling the Corinthians. So, well, as we reflect on our authority as a church, let's not forget that we only have this authority because Christ laid down His authority for us. He he was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Uh, It is his example of humility that we follow as we govern this church, his church, for God's glory. So let me close this in prayer. Father, we, we pray that we always come to you in humility. Uh, and that uh, our our goal and what we what we should live for is for the for your glorification, because you have created the 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 world. You created church governance. Father, you wrote it in your word. Father, just let us be so mindful of that as we try to live out our membership here at UBC. Uh, Father, keep us pure doctrinally. Uh, let us always be thoughtful and compassionate in how we do church discipline, and Father, in how we think about membership. Father, let us be a welcoming body, but for those who really believe in you, Father, let us build this church up. Let us be a light to the world. Father, we pray for the. Uh, service to come. We pray for Brad's preparation, Father, and let us see those applications that will live out uh, in our church governance uh, and how we do that. Father, let us help us to support our elders, help us to volunteer and come alongside our deacons, and Father, we thank you for those examples uh, as the only offices that we hold in this church. Father, we just... uh, We pray that as we do understand that our responsibilities is there because Christ laid down his life for us, laid down his authority, Father, so so we can we can receive the grace that you have that you've given us through him. In Christ's name I pray.